Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Gratitude Unfiltered. I'm your host, Joshua T. Berglund, and I know I said I was done broadcasting on social media and we were just going to go on our network. However, this broadcast is important, and my pride aside in wanting everyone to go to the LiveMana Worldwide Multimedia Broadcast Network to watch, I needed to put aside today because today is an important broadcast. And not to, I'm not overstating my value here. I, this subject is important. HIV, cannabinoids, and the war on drugs is what we're going to be discussing today with the world-renowned Dr. David Ostrow. Now, let me tell you something. As you guys know, as a lot of you know that watch uh, The Gratitude Unfiltered and you've watched this journey, you know about my story. You know that I live with HIV. I live a healthy life. I live, I'm like, it's basically like not having it up to the point of, I got to take a medication every day. But the fact is, I live a healthy life. I'm able to count on living a long life as long as the Lord wants to keep me alive. But I don't have to live in fear of HIV destroying me or killing me because of men like Dr. Ostrow. Now, there are people before me in the 70s and 80s when the HIV epidemic hit and then it became AIDS that a lot of people died. A lot of people have died in the name of HIV and AIDS research. A lot of people have suffered trying to provide a cure. There's people that died like for senseless deaths because maybe they came up with a cure. Then you have the whole thing about the war on drugs. Guess what? We lost the war on drugs. In the 80s when Ronald Reagan decided that they were gonna start this war on drugs in the Just Say No campaign, what happened? Guess what? Crack was introduced to the inner cities. Why? To fund wars. The war on drugs is bull crap. It's garbage. We have Marines over in the Middle East right now guarding poppy fields. Why is that, you think? There's something going on really sinister, and I don't like it. This broadcast is going to have multiple facets to it. We're going to talk about cannabis. We're going to talk about chemsex. We're going to talk about uh, how cannabis can be uh, a, a way out for people that suffer with addiction. We're going to also talk about HIV and its relation to cannabis. Now, I have made no secret to this. Yeah, I'm a shock jock evangelist. Yeah, I love the Lord Jesus with all my heart. But I'm also an advocate for cannabis. Why? Because God didn't make anything bad. Only man got his dirty little hands on it and decided he wanted to corrupt everything. But I don't play that game. I believe in cannabis. I believe in cannabis because I know how much it's helped me. Sure, is it recreationally fun? Okay, yeah, it is. But you know what? It's also been one of the things that's helped me live a healthy life. I, it's, it's, it's been the counter effect to all of the medication that I used to take. I mean, it's eliminated nine medications out of my life. I take one right now, and that is my HIV meds. And that cannabis helps me offset the side effects of that. So this, my friends, is a very important broadcast. We, there is no doctor on the planet that I would rather have on to discuss this issue because this man is a hero. This man was in the trenches fighting for those. For people like me, I guarantee you, I, actually, I don't even know this, and I want to ask him this, but when he was fighting, 
and he was going into protests and going and treating people that were fighting for the rights to live and fighting just to know how in the world they were going to survive HIV, how they were going to survive AIDS. This man was in the trenches fighting on behalf of people like myself. So I am honored, ladies and gentlemen, to introduce to you the one and only David, Dr. David Alstral, right after this. You want them rolling out the red carpet, the red carpet, the red carpet. You want them rolling out the red carpet, the red carpet, the red carpet. You want the finer things, the diamond rings, the designer jeans, all minor things in the widest scheme. But at what cost to realize your dreams? Been bleeding in the wheel more, put the crown of thorns on, spill more. My mic bloody cause I kill more, but I'm still poor. Bottom is where I started, when I get to the top and park it. Plug up in a harlot, my battery needs charging. And to reach my target is the illest in the market. Is some liquid from my arteries, will spill onto the carpet, yeah. Everybody want fame, nobody. What's up, everybody? This is Live Bonham Ministries presents Gratitude Unfiltered, and I want to give a shout out really quick to our sponsors, Burn Doctor Plus and Bug Bite Doctor. Now, believe it or not, this is the same product. What's in this magical product, you will have to learn for yourself. But if you have herpes, if you have scars, if you have burns, if you have a flesh wound, and here's a little secret, you can use it as an anti-aging product, and also hair growth. My bald spot, I know you may not be able to see, but I'm getting hairs growing through my bald spot because of this product. It's amazing. So, want to give a shout out to them. Um, I'll tell you what, we're going to give away two of these bad boys today, and just to know a little bit goes a long way. If you want one of these, uh, just comment me, and I'll select a random winner. Also, want to give a shout out. I hate masks. You know I hate masks, but some places you have to wear them. So why not wear thegreatestmask.com? We're going to give away one of those too. God bless you guys. Thank you for being here. And I am honored, ladies and gentlemen, to introduce Dr. David Ostrow. What's up, doctor? How you doing, man? Uh, pretty good. Um, I've got my vaccinations and I'm getting ready to start going outside. <laughs> Wait, now you're in Florida, right? No, you're in Chicago. Chicago. Wow. Okay. So before we get into vaccinations and the whole conversation, because there is a lot to unfold with you. I learned a lot about you during the uh, 420 last year, and I just was blown away by all the work that you've done. And as I've gotten to know you and follow your journey a little bit more, I've just been in awe of you and the work that you've done. But first things first, Dr. What are you grateful for today? Well, I'm grateful to be alive. When I learned that I um, had become infected with HIV in the early 80s, I never expected to see the 21st century. Yeah. And here I am, uh, like you, very grateful uh, that science and um, uh, the world has uh, come to accept this as a uh, chronic uh, treatable disease. Um, so that's number one. And number two, I'm grateful for having survived the uh, coronavirus epidemic because I'm in the high-risk groups uh, for a number of reasons. Now, I will actually, golly, there's that you just opened a whole new path to go down with you. I want to talk to you about that because I remember when the virus first outbroke, the two main companies that were in the news 
where Genvoya and uh, I forgot the other one, but Genvoya was a focus for me because my HIV meds are made by them. So I'm like, wait a second, why are, why is Genvoya in this mix talking about the coronavirus? And then the more research I started to do, I started to see that there was a connection between COVID and HIV. Can you speak to that at all? Yeah, I'll speak to it at two levels. The first is, although they're very different viruses, they share uh, several mechanisms in their reproduction in the cell. And uh, one of them is the need to um, have one very conserved genetic code that's read out, but then has to be cut in very specific places to produce the actual uh, viral uh, components. And there's a protease inhibitor that is not found in the cell that the virus has to bring in with it, a, pro a, a protease. And it was the discover of protease inhibitors against HIV that was the key uh, step in coming up with a durable and, and successful um, treatment as you're on. Uh, so to the extent that the coronavirus has that same step in its creation, one of the first things they did was take off the shelf a number of protease inhibitors that researchers have been looking for to see if they worked in other viruses and to test them here. That didn't go very far. <laughs> okay. So is, so it's, it's, I, and I, okay. And this is the problem. This is the problem with the internet because it allows people to do their own research. I've been, I won't, I'm afraid to take the vaccine because the last vaccine I took almost killed me about four months ago. I thought I had cancer in my blood and all kinds of crazy stuff because I had this horrific outbreak. So I've been terrified of the vaccine and there's there's something been fishy to me around these vaccines. So for the people like me that are like, screw that, I'm not taking that vaccine, it's gonna kill me. Can you speak to that as a legitimate, not just a medical doctor, but a true researcher? <laughs> Somebody that knows this stuff. Can you speak to the people like me who fear the vaccines? Sure. Um, imagine if the HIV virus was not spread through intimate contact, but in the air oh. to anybody who walked past you or who you breathed upon or, or whatever. Right. Um, uh, we could all be dead, I mean, by now. Or we could all have HIV, Okay. So um, for this virus, which is, which is so much more easily spread than, than a virus like HIV, which requires like skin to skin and cell to cell transfer, um, uh, you either have, you have one of two ways. Uh, you can develop treatments for people who've already become infected to keep them from getting sick. Right. And, that, and that's been one line or even better, since this is a brand new virus, nobody had immunity when it appeared, you can uh, focus on vaccines. And people you know, who were worried about these vaccines say, how could a vaccine been created in a year? Well, it wasn't created in a year. There, oh. there had been 10, 12 years of research on these types of vaccines by the same companies like Moderna, Oxford, et cetera, in an attempt to find Ebola, and SARS vaccines, okay? And right. when this uh, virus came along and identified it as being in the same class 
as SARS, they immediately took the technology that they had and adapted it to this um, uh, virus. And um, uh, the, the miracle is that uh, all the different drug companies that are competing against each other uh, decided that it was in everybody's best interest for them to put aside their proprietary concerns and to share knowledge and work together uh, to come up with this vaccine. Um, and we have now three, maybe four. Um, and of course, every time somebody gets a vaccine and gets sick like you did the other day or somebody gets very ill, you have to figure out, you know, were they already getting sick and it's just coincidental or was it a side effect of the vaccine? And um, except for the AstraZeneca vaccine, there haven't been any surprises in terms of the types and numbers of uh, problems that have occurred that would, would have occurred either in the placebo group or in a group that didn't receive the vaccine. So um, the, the real concern I have is the wealthy countries are buying up all the vaccine and the poor countries are being left to fend for themselves. And this is the kind of virus, as we know, that mutates. And if it's and if we leave three quarters of the world unvaccinated, and the vax and 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 the, the um, infection runs through them, then the chances of new uh, variants that will not uh, be sensitive to the vaccine or the treatments we have increases. So we're only as safe as the the rest of the world in terms of. Uh, preventing this uh, pandemic with vaccine. So if I take the vaccine, that means, does that mean I can still give it to other people? Um, that's a question that keeps changing. Originally, <laughs> we, we were very conservative. We didn't want to say that. And so we always said, you know, keep on the mask. And I still say keep on the mask. But the data is coming out that... Um, just as the first two vaccines seem to be in the real world 90% protective, they're also 90% able to reduce transmission um, in populations that have um, gotten the vaccine. But the question is then, well, what about when people who have not gotten the vaccine, like children, yeah. go to school? where maybe not all the teachers or staff have been vaccinated so they can bring in uh, the uh, virus. The children can get uh, asymptomatically infected wow. and then they can bring it home to their parents, grandparents, etc. So that's, that's part of the problem of, of the fact that this, that the, I've never seen a, um, a virus A with such a broad spectrum of uh, almost immediate effects. We know, we know over time uh, HIV can cause anything, but th this virus can cause all different diseases in the acute phase, ranging from totally asymptomatic to the long haulers to the few children who get that multi-system uh, disease, which is uh, quite serious. And um, uh, there's a lot more to come. Now, on the other hand, the economic uh, impact, the fact that when we realized how we were screwing up, that the only way to uh, stop things was to basically close down 
uh, economic activity and then any activities that brought people together, uh, that's caused a huge amount of suffering and harm and so forth. So, you know, uh, public health is always a balance of harms and, and benefits. The problem is when politics gets mixed in with public <laughs> health, okay? Um, during the Trump administration, I was always concerned when it was Donald Trump talking about what the scientists should or shouldn't be doing rather than uh, Tony Fauci, who really knows what he's doing, okay? And uh, now it's like uh, us, uh, wearing a mask is seen as you know, a sign of your political affiliation or whether you believe Trump was elected president or not. <laughs> and um, there's no place in public health for that kind of thinking. Public health has to be practical, useful, and uh, yeah, there's a sacrifice to be made, but it's for the public good. But let me ask you something. I, I, I have to challenge, I, and I mean this respectfully, but your comment about Dr. Fauci, that guy, and I understand his history and the work he's done with HIV, and I, I understand that, but he has changed his mind in what he says every week. He's not consistent, has not been consistent for a year. How in the heck can anyone trust him when he's not consistent? All right, I've known Tony from, from 1984 when he took over NAID, which is when I started my research with them, and I've known him all through at that time. And I think he represents a, a true scientist who's willing to change his mind as new evidence, new uh, thinking comes along. So... Uh, those people who try to say, oh, he changes his mind, this, he changes that, they're not really looking at the rationale behind those changes or why they said those things, okay? Right. Okay, that's fair. Um, <laughs> that's, that's really fair. Especially actually when even for Fauci, this is a new disease that he had never encountered. What do you say to the people that say this this disease was weaponized and unleashed on the world? What do you say to that? I have a problem with conspiracy theories because <laughs> of course um, you if you know my history, I started out in, in the field of infectious diseases by discovering that hepatitis B was transmitted sexually and then was the, the principal investigator uh, with the CDC and Merck on the trials for the first hepatitis B vaccine. And a conspiracy theory came out that the vaccine that the, that the uh, vaccine had uh, been purposely contaminated uh, with with HIV um, yeah. in order to eliminate gay men, IV drug users, etc. So, and here I was, you know, the the PI for the Chicago trials, and we didn't yet know what H, you know, that it was HIV, but it was what you know the agent. So right. over time, we were able to rule that out and show that the uh, Merck uh, procedure for purifying the hepatitis B would have killed um, any HIV that had been there. But I think the best argument was when I met uh, Jonas Salk just before his death uh, at, a, at a dinner commemorating his start of work on an HIV vaccine. And I asked him this question, how do you deal with conspiracy theorists who say these are man-made viruses. His answer was very straight and clear. The technology to um, uh, determine the genetic code of 
living organisms that then create in the laboratory, recreate those uh, DNA or RNA sequences didn't exist when these viruses first appeared in humans. Okay. Well, now the problem is, despite you know all the arguments, conspiracy theories have a life of their own. So yes, they do. The new conspiracy theory that this uh, was a man-made virus or it was a weaponized virus yeah. that escaped from Wuhan. Now, it's not helped by the fact that the Chinese government won't let us have access, you know, to the, the raw data or or look at the uh, uh, what, what was going on in that facility. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, the important thing is once they recognized the seriousness of the effect, the Chinese were able to put into effect uh, prevention and mitigation uh, procedures that would never be tolerated in in Western civilization. I mean, people were put into quarantine. If they refused to go into quarantine, they were arrested and put into mandatory quarantine. And a hundred million people at one point were in quarantine in um, in China. So um, uh, the question of what a democratic society will tolerate versus what um, uh, may be the most effective, but certainly does not respect human rights, is a very important one. But I don't think asking people to wear a mask um, is 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 such a big burden that people should make a big deal out of it. What about the science? Okay, and listen, I just one of our sponsors, my wife and I, hate wearing masks. We hate them. Can't breathe in them. They make me crazy. So we created a mask that we can breathe in and work out in because when we do need to wear one, look, I'm going to be respectful of business owners and people that request I wear a mask. I'm not, I don't want to disrespect anyone's property, anyone's business. That's not my thing. I hate them, but in this case, I'm going to wear them because we created something we can breathe in. That's CDC compliant and all of that. But what about the science? That the psycholo- the, the the studies that have been done on the psychological effects of the mask, when does that factor in also to a human health or the a human health epidemic? Because mental health is still <laughs> it affects us too. Well, I think that's constantly being factored in, mm-hmm. um, and I think the new advertising campaign that's being brought out is going to emphasize the fact that. Um, It'll show a couple that are embracing each other. It's going to say, um, let's do the next steps so we can get back to being able to be with our loved ones, do our exercising without masks and so forth. But unfortunately, um, we're not there yet. And uh, But we're going to be there pretty soon, uh, especially if we beat out um, any of these new variants that might come up. Uh, that um, reduce the efficacy of the vaccine and the treatments. All right. I want to transition this, and this is where this could get sensitive for some of the public that's watching this, um, because this issue, some people don't know about, some people do, some people think they know and they don't know. But let's talk about, because one of the when we were going back and forth in our emails, one of the things that we discussed was chemsex. And what people, that's also known as party and play, but basically for the public that don't know those terms, 
it's people that love like methamphetamine, cocaine, and mixing it with sex because it heightens. Well, <laughs> the, it, you it makes sex. Uh, it takes it to a level of euphoria that is really almost impossible to do naturally. Um, and in when you're in that state, when you're in a chem st sex state of mind, and you're in the process of using drugs like that and having sex. Um, it creates an insatisfiable uh, craving, and risky sex is, becomes very much a part of the equation. And I always say this, I didn't get HIV from eating Cheerios, um, but I got it from having sex because I did a lot of really wild, crazy things for over 20 years, abusing drugs and having sex with anything that walked. Now, one of the things that we talked about because of your expertise in cannabis is, and I want to back what, chemsex is a real problem. You may not have heard about it yet, but I promise you, it's a thing. It's a big thing. It's a big movement, and it's growing. And, and, it's, and it's almost, you think your drug habit's hard to quit? <laughs> well, it's kind of like people with food addiction. You got to eat, right? Well, sex, if you're in a relationship or you're dating, most people have sex. And when, you, when you've experienced drugs and sex that cocktail together it becomes something it becomes a bit of a monster that likes to be fed and it doesn't go away easily so one of the things that we discussed was creating a a, a cannabis or a, um creating a cannabis plant or or finding something in the cannabis plant that can help people that are addicted to chem sex come off of it can you talk about that and your knowledge of chem sex and beyond Okay. Uh, originally, Ron Stahl and I did the research that identified three specific classes of drugs that gay men used for chemsex. Only we called it them sex drugs. Yeah. Amphetamines, mostly uh, stimulants, mostly amphetamines, erectile dysfunction drugs, and volatile nitrites or poppers, which in case your audience doesn't, doesn't familiar with them. They're a something you inhale that relaxes the smooth muscle, particularly in the uh, rectum. So it enhances, uh, it, it facilitates anal sex. So if there ever were a set of drugs that the virus needed to go through the community as fast as possible, those were it. Um, and we're able to figure that out because we started the... Uh, the multi-center AIDS cohort study in 1984 with people who were not positive. And then we followed, we've been following them ever since. And in the first uh, 10 years in Chicago alone, we had 300 persons who became infected between visits. So we could date their infection. And then we would look at their various practices, what stood out over and over again that there have been an increase in the use of those three drugs. And if mm -hmm. they used one class of drugs, maybe there was a 20% increased risk. Both, there was like a 45%. But if they used all three, two-thirds of the infections were associated with all three of those drugs. So, but, but then to get to your real point, what are we talking about when we're trying to help somebody get off chemsex? We're talking about trying to treat somebody who has two addictions. I like to call it like this double-headed serpent. They usually have 
a sex addiction mm-hmm. and it's being fueled by the drug use or drug addiction. When I talk to people who are trying to get off meth, the most common statement is I've had to learn totally how to have sex because I had forgotten how to have sex without the drug. Yeah. Now, I'm going to go back one step further and say, why, why is this happening? Well, I think all through recorded time, there have been favored uh, intoxicants that help people put away the concerns of the day and any fears they may have about sex, etc., um, that have become associated as the lubricants or chemsex of that society. And it's just inf- unfortunate that gay men um, found this combination and that combined with whatever initially introduced the virus into some gay communities was responsible, I think, for its rapid spread before we even knew that the disease existed. It, this, uh, so I want to backtrack for the audience that doesn't know this. Part of the reason why my wife and I are doing the Devil Inside Me series is we dive into quite a bit, actually, um, because after being molested and abused and all of those things as a kid, I didn't get help. I was silenced. Now, I was having reoccurring nightmares about what had happened to me over and over. It was like rotating between my family being murdered and me being raped. Now, when I experienced ecstasy for the first time, all of a sudden those fears went away. When I started using cocaine, all of a sudden those things that used to haunt me and become nightmares became full on fantasies that I became obsessed with making come alive. Then you get into meth and well, then I just became a whore because on four day meth binges and sleep with 20 people that I didn't know and I didn't care. Because I just had respect for my life. Well, it's slightly different for different people, but the general principle is we have an id that wants to go wild and have as much sex as possible. And Mm -hmm. we have an ego that watches over and tries to protect us. All of the drugs that are labeled as chemsex kind of cut, you know, separate those two parts of the brain. So you're having uninhibited, unfiltered, um joy once you've done that and you recover it's like wow that was wonderful let me do it again um why should i you know have concerns why should i have memories about my earlier um traumas and so forth and 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 that that's a formula for addiction uh no matter what the what the uh, substance or or behavior is this is this is this is why, ladies and gentlemen, that's watching right now. Why, as somebody that again, I'm an evangelist. I love the Lord Jesus with all my heart. Like this, and you, all of you watching, know this by now. But one of the things that I'm very honest with is about my real time struggle with this because it comes it comes out of the blue. But it, for all of the triggers in my life that I've healed and been able to reverse, and all of the work that I've done to write the ship of my life and start to produce actual good fruit in my life. I still crave this. This is a real thing. I can sit here and look you in the eye and say, I love Jesus with all my heart. And I want to show people out of hell while also admitting that 
I still have my own hell come visit me all the time. Like well, this is a real the, the, thing. They're, they're, we're actually we're, uh, getting to the point where there's, where there's going to be a physiological explanation for that. Most addictive drugs, opioids, meth, cocaine, etc., not only have the immediate effects, but they uh, cause changes in the synaptic connections in the brain. Um, and those are permanent. So even after you get off the drug or in total remission, those uh, changes will cause cravings, okay? And that's why relapse is so high. One of the reasons I'm pushing cannabinoids as a alternative form of treatment is not only don't they cause those changes, but I think we're going to find certain cannabinoids or um, certain and en um, endocannabinoids undo those changes. Okay, so that um, it, it's uh, you may not have those cravings and 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 that um, susceptibility to relapse as much. If um, but we're not there yet, and one of the reasons we're not there yet is because prohibition has made it impossible to do the kind of studies you want to do in the United States um, where we compare these drugs. But I'm here to announce that starting very soon, we're going to be doing um, clinician investigator observational studies of P uh, uh, in offices of doctors who are trained in medical cannabis, treating pain and opioid um, misuse, with cannabinoids, with the same instruments that the feds are using in a similar study of doctors using opioids and opioid antagonists. So eventually we will be able to directly compare them and show this to the skeptics who still say, where are the trials? I'm gonna ask you something that is a relatively, it may be a dangerous question to ask, but I'm gonna ask because I feel led to ask. One of the things about people that deal with, I know this, I know this from personal experience and I know it from others that I know that deal with this and they suffer in silence. And it's not, chemsex addiction is not just in the gay community or bisexual community or transgendered community. It happens in the straight world. Just with chemsex, you tend to not care and you get a little freakier, freakier than maybe you would have sober. But that said, say you've suffered with chemsex and one of or the addiction in itself and that pool. And it becomes something that is a little bit unsurfable. It's, again, it's like having a monster inside of you going, feed me or die. I mean, that's kind of what it feels like. You're going to give me this or I'm going to make your life hell. That's what it feels like. So what do you say to the people who are like, okay, well, maybe I should just scratch the itch and give it what it wants, and then maybe it'll go away for a little bit. Is there such thing, and I know this sounds crazy, especially with people in the addiction community, is there a... Is there a uh, uh, what do you call it? Would when you moderate a moderation version of chemsex to pacify that to make it go away, or does it make it stronger? Um, a lot of people have been working on it for a long time, but it's very very difficult um, because uh, these the, you know you know this the reward pathway and dopamine release and um, uh, the more that burst of dopamine occurs with the drug, the more addictive it is and hard to give up. And yes. unfortunately, these drugs that have gotten identified as chemsex 
are among the most potent in, in this area. Now, I will say this much. This is where non-pharmacological measures come in. One thing that people get into chemsex do is they start limiting their social network to people who either also engage in it or they think will not disapprove of their engaging it. So if you can get into a, not, not a celibacy, but a, but a harm reduction support group that will support you in making these changes and show you how you can form relationships, friendships, social support networks without the drugs, that, that's going to be a very important component of the treatment. Uh, man, I agree. There's nothing more than I, and I, I, I talk very openly about this because I do know that other people suffer with this in silence. And, and it's a real issue that needs to be discussed. Like, I love my wife. My, why, I can honestly say that my wife is a gift wrapped up from God and given to me. And, and, it is, and even the children are in my life, I've never loved anything more than I love my wife ever. And it's frustrating beyond belief to have this struggle that goes on inside of me because my mind and my body has this craving for something that she can't give me. And, 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 and like, even the corrupted way that I view sex, like I'm finally getting to where I can make love, but the corrupted side of my brain or whatever it is, it, 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 it's been pretty scarred from 20 years of chem sex. Like it's a, been a very odd thing to try to shift out of. And I hear people all the time talk about their healing journey and how they've healed and broke through. Well, I can tell you this, I've been on every type of a healing journey you can imagine, and this is the one mother effer that won't go away. And I don't um, know if this is my thorn that Paul talks about in the Bible or not, but this is the thing for me that I deal with almost every single day. Are you it, able to talk with your wife about these feelings? And, and she's watching and right now. Emptiness? What? We, we talk about this all the time. Like, it, there's no, I don't care. Part of how Gratitude Unfiltered started was a four-day meth binge, and I was about to go into my fifth day, and God came to me in a vision and said, I'm not done with you yet. This is going to suck, but I'm not done with you yet. I'm, you're going to put a spotlight on your shadow world. You can't afford to have secrets anymore. You're going to talk about all of it. So just true to form and to honor what God told me to do, even after I have had relapses, I talk about it on the air the next day because I feel like it's my it's this is part of my duty. This is my testimony. This is real life. You can love Jesus and still struggle with some really weird crap. It's a fact. So we talk about it. I talk about it openly because in the end, I know that talking about it, there will be a solution provided. And not just talk about it. Together, look for other activities you can do together that can help you gain, feel like you're gaining control over your life, but don't put you in harm's way, okay? It's yeah. different for every person. But, um, uh, you know, if you're in a true loving relationship and you trust each other, um, you might need uh, pastoral or professional help. But there are all kinds of 
programs and activities out there that you can do, maybe even helping others overcome this same problem. That's why I talk about it because I don't give into it. Like, I believe me, I'm not going to lie. I want to. I mean, the things that I want to do, no, I don't do it because I know that I may never come back, <laughs> especially with meth. Like, I know that the first time that enters my, my body again, uh, I don't know what's going to happen. And I don't even want to play with that fire. No way. But, but I still talk about it because it is a real thing. I may not give in to all the crazy stuff that I want to do, but I would say that I still struggle with it because I fight with it. Like mm -hmm. I sit, I pray it away. I come on here and talk about it when I'm struggling because I know the one thing that the enemy doesn't like is putting a light, a spotlight on the very thing he's trying to kill me with. So that's why I talk about it. It doesn't mean I'm free from it. I just talk about it. So I appreciate what you're saying very, very much, especially as a medical professional. Now let's segue into the war on drugs. You have a very strong, a lot of strong opinions and beliefs about this. So I want you to, um, you have the floor. I want you to talk about the war on drugs, your perspective about it, what you think the solution is and so on. Well, I never call it the war on drugs. I call it the war on drug users. Okay, <laughs> and back in the 30s, beginning of the 30s, and then further codified under Nixon was a punitive system of drug policy control that um, A, said that specific drugs, primarily those that threaten monopolies, okay, you know, uh, hemp and cannabis, was uh, very popular for newsprint and for uh, cloth. And, and uh, uh, Ford Motor had even built a, a car with a, with a hemp uh, yeah. shell and all that kind of stuff. And, and you had the railroad monopolies and so forth. And um, they saw hemp as a uh, real threat. So they started a campaign to demonize it. Hearst, who publishes papers on yellow uh, newsprint because it was cheaper than bleached paper, that's where the term yellow journalism came, published headlines every week about how the horrible drug addict was the cause of all the problems. And you've seen all the propaganda movies about how, you know, somebody with one cigarette will turn your daughter into their sex <laughs> or uh, a teenager on the on the uh, playing field in, in, into a, into a homosexual and so forth. Yeah. So it was based on lies. It was based on no scientific evidence. But once it was put in place, then they had to come up with a way to keep science from uh, disproving it. And mm -hmm. so uh, cannabis is the only Schedule One drug where not only is it in that schedule but if somebody wants to develop a drug using cannabis in the united states they cannot import or grow legal cannabis for those studies and the u.s government controls all the production and uses it only for studies of the negative aspects of cannabis so um and then at the same time um any organization, medical school, hospital, whatever, receiving federal funds 
is constantly being warned. If you take a permissive attitude towards this drug, you're in danger of losing all your federal funding. So the stigma and the fear, et cetera, makes it very difficult to change the minds, even of my own colleagues. I'm in a fight now with the American Psychiatric Association, which is doing a, a soul-searching investigation of structural racism in psychiatry, but they will not admit that the drug policies that they are enforcing and agreeing with are racist in origin themselves. If you go to the, the very beginning of psychiatry, uh, you, it's rooted in racism. The Holocaust. Absolutely. Oh, my uh, God. Uh, like, Dr. Rush, who was the founder of modern psychiatry, was a slave owner. Yes. And, and, and the earliest um, psychiatrists to approach this, they even had a diagnosis for a slave who wanted to be free was considered psychotic. Because why would they want to be let out of this benevolent situation of slavery with their substandard, not, uh, intelligent, and ability to fend for themselves. Really quick, audience, for those of you that are going, what the heck are you talking about? All you need to do, Google the Psychiatry Museum of Death on Sunset Boulevard in Los Angeles. Go visit it. Uh, it was the most eye-opening, sobering thing. I've been to a lot of different historic monuments in my life that a lot of people have died at. Let me tell you, you want to have your world rocked and you think that there's no racism and you think all of this stuff, go to the Museum Psychiatry of Death and learn for yourself what the doctor is saying is 100% true. Sorry, continue. Well, not much else to say. I remember in my <laughs> residency, uh, I, I one of the patients assigned to me was a young black woman. And when she met me, she was very uh, negative. She said, I want somebody who looks like me. Okay. Now, there were no black residents in my program at the time. And um, I didn't want to turn it into the focus of the therapy. But, you know, we did have to work out why she so feared um, white psychiatrists and why she wanted a black one. Now, now, as we try to examine structural racism in psychiatry, the problem is that a lot of people see it as a zero-sum game. Like if we um, develop, if if we uh, uh, mentor mentor and increase the percentage of minority psychiatrists, that's going to decrease the number of patients available to white psychiatrists. I don't think that's the case. I think there's a tremendous unmet need, and that. Um, there's more than enough misery and, me and, and mental health problems to go around, but we really need to all be educated. Rec the most important thing is recognizing the racism that's inside you that is unconscious because we've explained that there's a lot of people in this that, environment. That's going to be over a lot of people's head. Can you explain that? Because I don't even fully understand that. Well, well, you know that the uh, the uh, editor of the uh, of uh, the journal American Medical Association just lost his job because, in response to several articles about racism in medicine, 
he wrote an article that said, what are you talking about? There's no racism in medicine. I'm not racist. And that caused a tremendous uh, uproar. And he actually lost his position. So um, uh, we have a long way to go, but uh, becoming defensive about it or fearful about it, um, you should never fear the truth and you should never fear seeing what's going on inside you that may consciously or unconsciously affect the way in which you interact with the patients you're trying to help. You know, it's it's interesting you say this and you talk about fear. I grew up in Oklahoma, and I'm not saying that Oklahoma is racist or any of that, but I saw a lot of racism in Oklahoma when I was growing up. And mind you, maybe it was from previous generations and you would hear comments. And But I remember having only been in Oklahoma, you know, only being around a few black people in my life and a few people that didn't look like me because, you know, Oklahoma, it's mainly white. So anyway... But I remember growing up, going, you know, when we would go play football against uh, the schools that were, you know, all black schools or even going into high school when I was exposed to more black people, I wasn't, I didn't know. I've always been drawn to people that look different than me, but I would admit that I had some kind of fear because I didn't know. But I was so blessed early on. I had a friend named Ahmed Cooper who was older and I had other black friends, but I was still a little bit scared, not gonna lie. But I remember him, he was a giant, gigantic man. And he was a senior in high school. And here I am as a sophomore. I don't know anything about anything. And he took me under his wing. And all of a sudden, like all that fear went away. And I started to say, oh, we're all humans. Now, and then, but the other thing that I was scared of, because I didn't know, and I was having all of these nightmares about being raped by guys, that I was scared of gay people, because I thought they were all going to rape me, even though... I'm having these battles in my head about what was going on. Drugs tend to open my, like using ecstasy opened my mind and it eliminated that fear. Now, that's a weird thing, but that's the truth. Now, I want to talk about that. The, the um, one thing, I, I want to segue now out of racism into the LGBT community. A lot of people still don't understand it. A lot of people say, uh, you're born gay. Some people say it's a generational sin that's passed on. Some people say you turn yourself gay with the things that you do. Can you speak from perspective of a scientist about that issue? Um, well, I reject the issue that you make yourself or somehow... <laughs> uh, I tend to think of sexuality as not in an either or gay straight, but as a continuum. And okay. we all uh, can move around that continuum in different stages of life and so forth and uh, experiment and studies of, you know, adolescents, young adults starting out show that uh, young men will have sex with both men and women. But the ones who end up adopting, becoming gay, don't enjoy it with women as much as they enjoy it with men. And I know for myself, those feelings were there from, you know, earliest consciousness. So, um, uh, you know, and you could look at the most repressive uh, uh, societies, you know, where, where uh, homosexual activity is, is punished with death, and you're still going to see a core a group of people practicing it in, 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 
in uh, private and so forth. Um, so uh, I, I, I think you have to get away from A, the duality, the one is either A or B, and C, understand that um, uh, this is, this is uh, only one dimension of one's identity and sexuality. Um, and there are many others that, that, that need to be looked at. Yeah, I, I, I 100% agree with that. I mean, the, the whole thing is that we're all spirit. We're just in a dirt body. So, and a spirit doesn't have a sex, it's energy. So I've never understood the duality side of it anyway, but for the sake of what most of the planet believes, I wanted to bring the question up that way. I've never understood it. To be honest with you, I, I remember even before I was molested, like I was, and I didn't understand anything, but I physically remember exploring myself in a way that, well, would lean more towards maybe gay, right? Like I didn't know. I was curious about things that I didn't really understand. Now, I didn't, I, was I born that way? I never understood that, but I grew up in a church that, well, like most people that went grew up in church, you hear, yeah, homosexuality is a sin. You're going to hell for it because it says right here in the Bible, you're going to hell for this. And I never understood that as I got older, as I learned, well, wait a second, aren't we spirit? I kept going back to that statement. I always had a problem with it because I didn't understand it. Now, I've tried to justify it by saying, hey, it's a generational thing. It's passed on. Maybe it's a learned behavior. But again, if I'm being honest, I don't believe any of that. I side more with what you're saying. And I appreciate yeah. you addressing that issue. I really Great. do. I've never I mean, actually. I mean, it's a difficult issue. I mean, some uh, people have tried to address it through genetic studies. Those have been, you know, uh, controversial. But certainly um, I see in families uh, a uh, suggestions of, of hereditary influences on sexual orientation. Interesting. I remember my dad used to, I, this is when I was still very, very in the hiding and living in the shadows. I remember being really paranoid because I would hear my dad joke around saying he was bisexual. And I, I never, like, I was like, is he making fun of me? Or is this, is this true? Like, what is he being funny? Like, I could never understand. And I never asked him. And right before he died, he found out about my HIV diagnosis. And we never had a discussion about it, ever. Mm. Uh, but I was always curious about that. Like, is this something that's passed down? So anyway, I really appreciate you addressing these subjects. Um, and God, we've covered a lot. COVID, HIV, LGBT community, the war on drugs or the war, the war on drug users, cannabis. Is there anything else on your heart that you want to share? Um. Yes, I think we have an opportunity now with the new administration to get changes at the top that might change the situation. But we have to be pushing for it because it's not a given, okay? Not all Democratic congressmen, senators, governors, senators are going to be in favor of uh, changing the drug laws, okay? There's always going to be people who are going to say that you just, you just, making uh, another temptation for children and everything. So I think it's, it's, it's time to really put the uh, pedal to the metal 
and and work through various groups and uh, whatever contacts you have with your representatives to make sure that the people at the top that are going to be determining drug policy are in favor of ending prohibition, permitting research in the United States, and eventually bringing uh, cannabinoid medicine into the mainstream. Amen. Doctor, I um, I am very grateful for your time. You're welcome back anytime. Anytime you have anything you want to discuss, you just let me know. Um, I would be honored to host you. I am so grateful for the work that you've done. Um, you know, there's a few doctors I've met over the years that were in the trenches like yourself and uh, the people that were helping HIV patients and AIDS patients before most doctors would even give them a second look. And for that, you know, there's, I, I, owe, I owe my life to the Lord, but I also feel indebted to people like you that made it possible for people like me to go on and live a healthy life. And I'm truly, truly, I'm living the life of my dreams and it's because of people like you. And I just want to say thank you. Well, I want to say those the kind of words that keep me going. Thank you, doctor. God bless you, man. Same to you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was something. A lot to unpack there. If you uh, caught the, the ending of it, it's worth watching all of it. Um, I want to thank everyone for watching on the Live Mono Worldwide Multimedia Broadcast Network. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I opened it up to Facebook. I said I was done, but this is important. We answered questions that he answered questions that, frankly, you don't hear talked about much. And these conversations need to happen. And the, for the people that, you know, question like, well, this isn't a faith-based show. Dude, you can love Jesus and have people on from the secular world. And you can, we need to discuss these things. The church is in a stupid box. And like, the box is safe. I hate the box. I want to break out of it. Like, what good does it do to stay in the confines of a safe building and not going out and reaching the people that need help, that truly need it, and doing it in a way that's not safe? Preachers, pastors, evangelists have to get, just get real. Not everybody struggles with the same thing, but have real, honest conversations. Just say, well, I struggle with porn addiction. What is that doing? Saying you struggle with desires to use drugs, what is that doing? Who is that changing? It's not changing anything because it doesn't mean anything. What do you do when you hear that that a that a that a, a priest touched another little boy? Are you doing anything about it? Are you fighting? No. That's why no change is happening. That's why human trafficking is worse than it's ever been. That's why more people get sexually abused than ever before. To change, we have to get uncomfortable. And the, the safety thing, that I, I get it. Like when you go to church, you're there to hear the word of God. But sometimes in church, you don't hear the truth. Yeah, you get to hear the pastor's opinion or you get to hear his sermon notes. But you know what? Sometimes people need to hear that you're hurting. Sometimes people need to hear, I broke my desk. Sometimes people need to know that you're suffering inside. And you can love Jesus and be suffering. 
And sometimes your suffering has more to do with you than anyone else because maybe you are what brought it on you in the first place. Maybe it's the secrets that you're keeping. Maybe it's the shame that you're living in because you feel guilty for who you are. Quit apologizing for who you are. Because the minute you stop apologizing for who you are, you begin to see how God sees you. All of a sudden, when you can love yourself the way that you are and do loving things for yourself, you begin to realize that, wait a second, I am worthy of love. I am worthy of living the life of my dreams. God loves me just as I am. Does he like does he like everything I do? Oh, God, Lord, no, he doesn't. But you know how God will love your heart? Honesty. Do you know how God will fall in love with you and bless you beyond measure? Being real. God doesn't bless lies. Even when you're lying to yourself. So, I know we tell ourselves, no, 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 I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it because I'm a Christian and I love Jesus and I'm not going to do it. And you beat yourself down into submission to the point that you isolate yourself from the world. You rob the world from your gifts and you keep yourself from expressing yourself. And guess what happens when you express yourself? You screw up and you make mistakes. But do you know what I may know about making mistakes? God uses everything. God takes what was a disaster. God takes what would hurt you. God takes what, 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 what hurt your feelings and corrupted you and what polluted your mind in the first place. And if you can express it, God will use it. But when you hide it and you hold it down and you suppress it, that gives the enemy an opportunity to kick your teeth in day in and day out and just wreck your life. That's what happens when you hold back. I can talk about having HIV. I can talk about jail six times. I can talk about chem sex. I can talk about loving Jesus. I can talk about all of the things freely, without fear, because I know that God's got me. I know that God loves me just the way I am. And because of that, I've learned to love myself. And in loving myself, I've learned to make better choices for my life. Does it mean life is easy? Does it mean I don't struggle? Does it mean that I don't suffer a little bit? Oh, God, no. I suffer all the time. The consequences of my past still love to creep up. But I know that nothing, I didn't mean to pop him back on there. I know that nothing can keep me from the promises of God. I know that I nothing can keep me from the promises of God other than me. And it starts with loving me. It started with loving me. And as I learned to love myself, I learned to make better choices for myself. Therefore, the things that I used to do that caused me so much pain and suffering, the lies, the hiding, the cheating, the manipulating, when all that went away, all of a sudden, everything in my life turned around 
And everything that I lost, God has restored with the exception of the twins. And that is coming. I know it's coming. So don't know what the point of that was, <laughs> but I'm fired up. Thank you for being here. God bless you. And uh, you guys have an amazing day.